My name is John Hawkins, and I have the privilege of introducing Nika Spaulding, who is going to be our speaker today. And uh, by way of introduction, there are a lot of things about Nika that are different from 99% of the people in this room. Uh, the first is obvious that she is a woman. She was valedictorian of her class, high school class, in Dell City, Oklahoma. Do we have any high school valedictorians here? She went on to receive a full scholarship to the University of Oklahoma. Uh, that's a small state school up in uh, Oklahoma. She's a fierce college football fan and watches game day every Saturday from 9 till the first game starts at 11 a.m. on ESPN. She got her THM and graduated a year ago from Dallas Seminary. And she is currently the Assistant Director of Women's Ministries at Watermark Community Church. She writes her curriculum, and she teaches several hundred women every week. Now, one of the things that she would probably not want me to say is that she was a counselor for my daughter at Canacuck Camp uh, seven years ago. And so that's how we got to know her, and she lived with Diane and me for five years. The last thing I'll say about Nika before she gets started is that she was on the goal line of the Fiesta Bowl when Oklahoma played Boise State, and she was on the goal line where the scoring happened on the Statue of Liberty play, and then the two-point conversion where Boise State did the Statue of Liberty play. So that's one of her low points of her life. So greet Nika Spaulding. Thanks, John. Uh, I haven't gotten over that yet. Uh, I still have memories of that guy getting on one knee proposing to his girlfriend, and I was like, nobody cares, man. Nobody cares. <laughs> e Ian Johnson. So, like John said, I typically teach the women's ministry at Watermark, and so there's usually not this many Y chromosomes in the room. And uh, John told me to tell you that I wasn't even sure that the Reformed tradition allowed women on stage, and so I was supposed to make that bad joke this morning as well. But um, it is a pleasure and a privilege to get to be here with you all. As John alluded to in my introduction, I am an impressive individual. If you didn't catch that, valedictorian of my high school. Now, granted, high schools in Oklahoma are not quite the same thing here in Texas, but still valedictorian. Not only was I valedictorian of my high school class, I won an award called Academic All-State, which is given to the top 50 students in the entire state of Oklahoma. It's such a prestigious award, my school got to fly a flag in my honor for an entire year. And so you can imagine just the arrogance and the pride as you're driving by, and you're like, that's my flag. Like, for me. Not for my school, for me. I went on to get a 34 on my ACT, and for those of you who aren't, you know, kids with school age yet, the highest you can get is a 36. It puts me in the top 1% of the nation on my ACT, which landed me a full scholarship to the University of Oklahoma, as John said. Not only am I impressive academically, I don't want you to be mistaken by this 5-foot, 6-inch frame. I am also an incredible athlete. If you haven't seen the picture of me catching the bouquet at John's, John's daughter's recent wedding, you'll see that I've got mad ups. I was a letterman in four different sports in, at Oak, in my school, in high school, and not only that, I captained all of them as well. I was impressive. I went on to college at the University of Oklahoma, and some of you would say trade school, but I would argue one of the greatest schools in the nation. And uh, my freshman year, I won an award that goes out to the top 1% of the freshman class. In addition to that, they give an award to the top 1% of the 1%, and I received that as well. I ended up graduating Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Oklahoma with a zoology degree 
In every sense of the word, I was impressive. And so many of you in this room are dads, and that's what we're here to talk about today. And so you're asking yourself, how do I raise a daughter like that? Right? I mean, who doesn't want a valedictorian, college football-loving, mad hops daughter in their home? And i got to tell you, a big, a big part of my success is, of course, just the Lord's grace. You can't be valedictorian without God giving you an extra dose of intelligence. But a very big part of my success has to do with the fact that my biological father, on my first birthday, abandoned me. He told my mom he was going out for a pack of cigarettes, and he never came back. And that's a really sad story. And at the time, most of my childhood, I could not have articulated to you that part of the reason why I was so desperate to achieve was because I lived in fear of abandonment. Most of my life, achievement for me meant securing love from the people around me. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I couldn't fully articulate that. It's taken years to figure out part of why I was just driven and never satisfied and needed more and more and more. But I've learned over the years it's because I was terrified that the people in my life, like my father, would walk out. And so I had to achieve. For me, success meant love and failure meant abandonment. Not only did I see this play out in in achievement, but I also saw this played out in codependent relationships. I was so terrified that people in my life would leave me that I wanted to meet every single need that they possibly could have. If you can meet all of those needs, if you can impress them, if you can wow them, if you can be everything to this person, they'll never leave. And again, I didn't know that's what I was doing. Like, if you would have asked me, hey, tell me about your biological father, I probably would have responded comically, if not callously, do you mean the sperm donor? I just, I didn't know this man, and I had no desire to know this man. In fact, I've had very little contact with him in my life. I met him once when I was eight years old, and then the next time I was supposed to meet him when I was ten, he was actually in jail for what was probably his tenth DUI. Not exactly the kind of guy you want to be around, even if you had the opportunity, is what I've been told. But that fear of abandonment drove me to be an impressive individual, and most of my life people would have applauded my achievement having no idea that I was terrified, that I was lonely, that I was scared. And that my impression of my heavenly father had been shaped by my earthly father in such a way that I was also terrified that God would leave me. God would abandon me. My salvation was based on works. My salvation was based on legalism. Everything in my spirituality, leading the FCA, being president of this organization, going on and speaking at high schools and all those things, there was a part of me that did it because of the pleasure of my father, but there was a part of me that also did it that feared that God would not fully love me if I wasn't a good kid that even he too would abandon me. And so the message this morning is about how desperate we are for good fathers. When John thinks about the most qualified person to talk about fatherhood, he thought of a young single woman. And so apparently John needs to spend more time with dads. But part of why he has me here today is because my story is about that. It's about being abandoned by my father and understanding passivity in fatherhood, but also having a great God who redeems even that. And so lest you think my life is just an anecdote, or you're sitting here going, well, I haven't left. I mean, I'm still there. Every afternoon, my kids come home, and I still see them. Abandonment can also simply just be passivity. And so that's part of what we're going to talk about today, is just what does it look like to be a passive father? Most of you have not abandoned your children if you're sitting in the room today, and I applaud you for that. But are you fully engaging and fully active in parenting your children? My story is one of them, but the, but the scriptures are clear about others. And the three examples of scripture I want to look at today all involve the father being present, but being passive. And so if you'll allow me, I'd love to just look at the text at a couple of the stories and see what we can learn from them. The first one we look at is in Genesis 34. 
And if you guys remember the story of Genesis well, it starts out with four events, creation, fall, flood, tower. And then we get into the patriarchs, the four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And Genesis 34 is part of the story of Jacob. And as you know, he has many high highs and many low lows. And I would argue Genesis 34 is one of the lowest of lows. It starts out in the beginning of Genesis 34 where he's in the land where he shouldn't be and his daughter Dinah is taken advantage of by Shechem. And it says that Shechem looked upon her and then he sexually abuses her, he rapes her. And then the text goes on to tell us that when word comes to Jacob of what's happened to his daughter, Jacob does nothing. He does nothing. And in this moment, you can imagine being Dinah and looking to your father for justice, looking to your father for comfort, looking to your father for help, and his response is passivity. I would argue not only is Dinah wronged in this moment by Jacob's passivity, I would argue so are his sons. Because the text goes on to tell us what Simeon and Levi choose to do in light of this. They're so furious about what's happened to their sister, and rightfully furious, that they decide to take matters into their own hands. But they are too young and too zealous to know what's appropriate. And so what they do is they convince all of Shechem's family to become circumcised. They're adult males being circumcised. I'm not going to go there with you, but you can imagine the pain that they're in. And so on the third day, after they've been circumcised, Simeon and Levi go in and, and murder all of these people. And God is not pleased. And it's interesting, most commentators believe God is not displeased because they took justice into their hands. He's displeased by the manner in which they took justice in their hands. They used circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, and used it in an unholy way. You must never trifle with God's holiness, is God's point in this. So justice have been exacted for Dinah? Absolutely. Should have been exacted in this way? No. But because of Jacob's passivity, Simeon and Levi are left to do things in their own way, and they're not mature enough to handle the situation they should have. Their father is the one that should have been handling the situation, according to the Old Testament law. And we see these boys then taking matters into their own hands in such a way that later on when they receive the blessing in in the end parts of Genesis, they're reminded of this moment and how wicked they were. Now, are the boys responsible for their actions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you place all of the blame on Jacob's shoulders? No. Of course not. But is he culpable? Yeah. Yeah. See, children need to know that their fathers will fight for them. They need to know that. Some of you in here have children at Highland Park. Um, I can see Mr. Bonnet wearing his shirt right now, and I know his daughter as well. And I learned a new word recently watching the news that the Highland Park uh, school district and the parents are in a kerfuffle over the books. That was the word that they used, kerfuffle. And so there are some parents, and rightfully so, that are frustrated by some of the books on the reading list. And so they're choosing to take a stand. And I just commend that. I commend that because I can think of nothing that would be more, more honoring to me as a young woman than to see my father fight for me so that I don't have to read Phil. What an incredible opportunity and a tangible way for a young person to see their dad fighting for them, demonstrating justice, demonstrating that he cares. Jacob had this opportunity, but because of his passivity, he missed this moment. That's the first one. The second one is this. is In 1 Samuel uh, chapters 2 and 3, we see the story of Eli. Eli was a high priest. Not only that, he was a judge. He was a really important guy in the history of Israel. And if you guys remember the story of Hannah, Hannah was a barren woman who desperately wanted a son. And so she cried out to God, and God gave her Samuel. And because she, her prayers were answered, she gave Samuel to Eli to raise. And Eli apparently was more concerned with raising Samuel than he was raising his own sons, Phineas and Hophni. And so Phineas and Hophni, the text tells us, are just wicked guys. 
They would steal meat from the people and eat the fattened portions. And if you know the Old Testament law, the fattened portions were reserved for, the, for, the, for God. You were supposed to burn the fattened portions off. And yet they would steal it from the people. And what's worse than that is they would also sleep with the temple prostitutes. And they would whore themselves out to idols and all of these things. And we know from the text that although Eli does address it once, in chapter 3, verse 13, God is very clear that he is being passive in his restraint of his sons. He's allowing them to do all of these things and trifle with God's holiness. He's not disciplining them. He's not loving them as a father should and showing them the rightful way to handle God's holiness. And so the boys must die. And when it comes time for them to die, God tells Eli, part of the reason why I must kill them is because you failed them as a father and you didn't discipline them. It's interesting, in chapter 4, we learn that Eli dies because he's so large, he actually falls and breaks his neck. And some people believe that's because he was so busy getting fat off of the very fat that his sons were stealing from the people. Eli was more concerned with his, his well-being, more concerned with his comfort, more concerned with his job, that he couldn't take the time to discipline his sons. Children need to know that their dads will discipline them. They need to know that their dads will not trifle with God's holiness. I have a, a niece that just turned four a couple of days ago, and um, my brother, Cody, and, and Jaden, it's just a really sweet relationship between the two of them. And my brother's four years younger than me, and so in my mind, he's still my little brother, so how he has a child is so far beyond my comprehension. Um, but my brother's a big dude, and he's tattooed up and bearded, and so when he disciplines his child, I'm like, oh my gosh, is she terrified of you? And he's got the strong arm of the law in their house. And so my, my sister-in-law, Ashley, spends the majority of time with Jaden, and she loves her and disciplines her and all of that stuff. But Cody is the strong arm of the law. And so when Jaden's in trouble, she knows that Daddy's going to come discipline her. And then there's my mom, who also lives near them. Gigi is what Jaden calls her. And Gigi just spoils her like any good grandparent would. And so Jaden often will go, Daddy's mean. Daddy's mean. And we're like, Jaden, Daddy's not mean. He's just got to discipline you. But how do you explain to a 4-year-old this is for your own good? And let me tell you, Jaden has earned all of her discipline. She is an awful child, which just <laughs> delights my soul. Um, her terrible twos have, like, grown. In fact, the other day, I saw my sister-in-law posted on Facebook that sometimes Jaden makes her want to punch puppies. And I was like, well, that's probably not a good thing. Huh? I'm not familiar with that metaphor, but uh, sounds negative. And so recently, uh, after, you know, daddy's mean, daddy's mean, recently my mom was telling me a story, though, that Jaden fell at this baseball game and hurt herself. And she's a pretty tough kid. Like, I've seen her face play on cement and just get up and keep playing. And so obviously she hurt herself. And, and so she gets up in big crocodile tears and the lips quivering. And she, Gigi's there. Ashley, mama's there. And daddy's there. And she walks right by Gigi and mommy and daddy. And just walks up to him and he picks her up and comforts her. Because the same strong arms that discipline her are the arms that bring her comfort. And she knows when I'm in pain and when I'm scared and I need love, my dad is there for me. And he might be mean because he beats me. He doesn't beat her, but he should. Then he knows that, yeah, he should. Uh, But she knows those same strong arms are the ones that are going to comfort her. Because a dad that disciplines you is a dad that cares about you. And Jaden knows that in her father. So that's the second snapshot we have. The third one is this, is that uh, comes from David's life, all of 2 Samuel. And you guys know David, right? Because I imagine men's ministry, you guys like rip your shirts off and beat your chest and just talk about David all day long. If y'all don't do that, don't tell me because that's just really cool what I imagine you guys do when the women aren't here. Um, and so the first 10 chapters are all about David's triumphs, right? We hear that he's a man after God's own heart and he's valiant and he's fighting and we love David. He's such a great character. And then in chapter 11, it starts out, and during the time when kings went off to war, David stays. 
and we know what happens. And he looks across, and he sees Bathsheba, and he takes her, and he sleeps with her. And then he gets her pregnant, so now he's got a problem. And so he brings Uriah, one of his mighty men, one of his valiant men who's been true to him this whole time. He brings Uriah home so that he'll sleep with Bathsheba. Nobody will know. And Uriah, being too faithful, won't do it. And so now David's got to kill Uriah, and so he does. And Nathan comes to him and he says, hey, man, you screwed up. And David did. And he gets it. And that's where we get Psalm 51, where he cries out to God, do not let your spirit leave me. I know I've screwed up. And so David has this moment where he can turn from this, this huge moral failure, and he can turn from it and go, Dad screwed up, guys. But he doesn't. And the rest of 2 Samuel is really all about David's failures as a parent. Almost an echo of what we see in Jacob's daughter's life. We see Tamar, David's daughter, being raped by Amnon. And again, David not acting on that. And so his son Absalom has to take matters into his own hands. And so Absalom, again, being zealous, does this. And not only that, Absalom claims the right to the throne, and there's just chaos. His entire house is marked by chaos through David's passivity and unwillingness to rise up. You just see David as if his moral failure just left him handicapped, and he couldn't bounce back. He just couldn't bounce back, and his life ends on sort of this sad note of David just kind of went to the grave with his house in, in disorder and his sons running amok and all of these things. And David had an opportunity to show his children what children need and that they need to know that their dads understand grace. They need to know that in the same way that a dad can understand justice, he can also understand grace. And David had an opportunity to rise up and go, hey, dad screwed up. Sorry. And we're going to move past this. I have a a father figure in my life who's very important to me, and he recently had a a pretty huge moral failure. Um, I hope the biggest one that he'll ever have. Uh, But who knows what God will do with this story and what he'll choose to do. But a big one, a big one. And in light of that, he's had the opportunity to pick up the phone and call so many people in his life and go, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up. And I got to tell you, that was huge for me. It, It is huge for me to be able to see that because if someday, by the grace of God, if I get married and my husband has a huge moral failure, I now have a model for what it looks like to be gracious to a man that I love and respect. Because he said, I screwed up. And I'm like, well, gosh, me too. I'm just glad it was you this time, you know? And David had that opportunity, but he doesn't do that. And our children need to see that we understand grace. And so what's my point in these three stories? Is that if you screw up your children or you screw up as a dad, your children are going to be screwed up. That is not the point, right? Because if that were the point, then there's no hope for me. Because I don't have a dad, and, and I don't know that he's going to ever come back. That's not the point of being a good dad, and that's certainly not where my story ends. The point of earthly fathers is to be an echo of a heavenly father. What my dad taught me early on was that I could be abandoned, and that is not true of God. And so I had to begin to change these views I held of God. And by the grace of him, I was able to. So my story doesn't end with just this overachieving girl who spends the rest of her life seeking the approval of man. Instead, through seminary and through living with John and Diane and through being reparented and all of these things, I began to get messages about a God that's true, that he will never leave me, never forsake me, no matter what I do. These pictures of these fathers, they failed not simply because they were bad parents, but because they didn't mimic God. In the first instance with Jacob, he's a bad dad because he does nothing, but ultimately he's showing Dinah, hey, fathers don't fight for their children, and that is not true of our Heavenly Father. I know my dad fights for me. Even if my earthly father won't, I have a Heavenly Father that will. In the second story, when when Eli refuses to discipline his sons, he fails in this moment because God disciplines us. We know this from Hebrews. We know this from our lives. 
Eli has an opportunity to mimic what God will do for his sons. And the same, the third one where David fails because he doesn't understand grace is we have a Heavenly Father who understands grace. And so dads, do we need you? Yes, absolutely. And are we going to be okay if you're not there? Yeah. Yeah, I can testify to that. Because my story doesn't end there. My story ends with me saying, you know what? There must be something different about a Heavenly Father. And so I begin to learn about him. And I begin to learn what he calls me. And like the woman in Mark 6 where he calls her daughter. And he's not worried about the fact that she's unclean and been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Instead, he heals her. And that's a big part of my story. And like that woman who lived with guilt and shame over her past condition, I was doing the same through my codependent relationships or my need for approval or my need to succeed. And when you have a real encounter with Christ and he calls you daughter, you begin to understand who your dad really is. And when you understand that, that just sets you free. And so as a dad, your job isn't simply to be a good dad, but your job is to point your kids to God who's going to be the best dad that they'll ever have. And you do that by mimicking him through discipline, through activity, by showing them who God really is. And so, yeah, I just graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and I graduated summa cum laude. And that's part of my story, right, of overachievement. But I can tell y'all, this time it wasn't because I thought I'd be abandoned. I lived with John and Diane for three years before I think they realized I was smart. I remember one day we were at dinner, and they are like, wait a minute, you make good grades? Because for them, they began to parent me in a way that I needed to be parented. It wasn't about my achievement. It wasn't about what I could do. They loved me because I was theirs. Guys, I moved into their house and didn't pay them rent for five years, and I rooted for OU and was so thankful when Texas lost. (laughs) And yet they loved me. John is a big part of my story in mimicking how God should love his children. And when you do that, it will set you free. And so what was so incredible about my story is that now I'm free to tell others about the love of God. Before, I was so self-centered and so worried about myself and so needing to, to achieve and all of these things and worried about being abandoned and worrying about being a failure. And now I don't worry about those things. And so Michael Spaulding is a, is a man who abandoned me. And so recently, um, his, his biological mother passed away, so I guess my grandmother. And I haven't spoken to this man in, I don't know, 15 years. And I felt like the Lord was asking me to call him and tell him, I'm sorry for your loss. And I was like, well, gosh, I don't even know how to get his phone number. And so I have an aunt on his side who I'm still in contact with, and I texted her and asked for the phone number, and she gave it to me, and I was like, okay, I'm going to sit on this and pray for a while. And when I need to, like, clear my head, I do woodworking, and so I'd, like, cleared out the garage at the Hawkins house and was making an Adirondack chair from wood I'd stolen from, like, a, a lot that John was building on or something. Sorry about that. And, uh, and so I'm out there, and the whole time the Lord's like, you need to call him. You need to call him. And there's a part of me, the young part of me, that's like, but what if he doesn't answer? What if he doesn't want to talk to me? Or what if he abandons me? But there was a much bigger part of me that says, it's okay, I'm free from that. Because even if my earthly father rejects me again, I have a heavenly father that won't. And so I was sitting on it and sitting on it as I tend to do. You know, like what you do, you're like, I'm processing that when actually you're just delaying doing what God's asked you to do. And so I was processing that. And then I was leaving church one morning and God was like, call him. And so I literally just pulled over and put the hazards on, picked up the phone, called him. And I was like, Lord... If you love me at all, you will let this go to voicemail. And so it did. Uh, and I just left him a message and said, hey, listen, this is your daughter, Nika. I know we haven't talked in a while, but I'm really sorry for your loss. And I can't imagine what it would be like to lose your mom. And so I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the, the peace of God will help you through this. And he never called back. And I don't think he ever will. But that's okay now. That's okay now because I know God. 
It's okay now because I know that I have a Heavenly Father that will never leave me, never forsake me, and He doesn't love me because of what I do. He loves me because I'm His. In fact, He loves me in spite of what I do, which is a great message because it frees me up to be fully deployed into what God has called me to be. And so what I'm asking of you dads isn't necessarily that you just be good dads. What I'm asking of you is that you be good dads who show their kids God. That when you're being a good dad, you're being an echo and a whisper of what their Heavenly Father has for them in stores and in magnitudes they cannot even begin to understand. And so is there hope for those of you who didn't have a great dad? Yeah, absolutely. God will redeem all of that. But part of why God allows you to have children is so that you can remind them of the love and the gift of grace that God has in store for them. Your children's great hope isn't that you'll be a great dad. It's that you'll be a dad who points them to the great God. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I just thank you that you are a good dad. I thank you that you are a dad who doesn't fail, and that you're a dad who loves us even, even when we fail. And so, Lord, I just thank you for a room full of men who would choose to know you, who would choose to pursue you, who would choose to, to mimic you in the ways that they husband and parent in their lives. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, you would magnify their faithfulness in their families' lives and you would begin times of legacy for them and their children that honor you. It's in your son's perfect and holy name we ask these things. Amen.